This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about the law and how it affects you. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. Think of me as your personal law professor as we navigate the big legal questions of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers. Welcome back to Passing Judgment. Today, I'm so excited to say that we are joined by Ellie Honig. He is a CNN senior legal analyst, a former federal and state prosecutor, a best-selling author. He's written Hatchet Man and Untouchable. He hosts podcasts, including Up Against the Mob and Third Degree. And he's here to talk to us about many of the legal issues facing former President Donald Trump. Ellie, thank you for being here. Thank you for passing judgment with us. And I want to get right into one of the cases that is actually ongoing right now against the former president. It's the New York State civil case. I think people know that this is a case involving allegations that the former president and his organization have committed fraud by inflating the value of properties in order to get favorable insurance deals and better bank loans. And I'm hoping that you can catch us up on how you think this trial is going, where you think we are. Of course, big reminder to people, even if the attorney general wins this case, there is no jail time at the end of it. This is a civil case. How are things looking so far for the former president? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Jessica. And I'm glad you noted this is a civil case. There's so much for people to keep track of. And I actually think like we can't talk about any of this till we go, okay, this is the civil case. This is the one in your, as you just did perfectly. Here's the main thing to know with this civil case. Well, the main thing to know is what you already said. This is not a jail case. This is not criminal. This is all about money. The big thing to know is it's already over. It was over before it started, not to sort of cast anti-climax on it, but the judge issued summary judgment, meaning a ruling in favor of the AG before the case even started. Now, that can happen in civil cases. It's somewhat rare because what a judge has to do in that situation is say, even if everything is as the defendant, even if everything here is as the Trump people say, they still lose. And so the judge on one of the seven claims here has already ruled in favor of the AG, something called repeated and persistent fraud. Basically, the judge issued a detailed 40-page ruling saying these valuations that the Trump organization put on its assets were not just a little inflated, but grossly overinflated. The judge says something to the effect of, I understand, as the Trump people argue, there can be some room for subjectivity in valuations. They might differ by 10% or 20% in the eye of the beholder, but not 2,500% and not... 50 times as we're seeing in this case. So what are they fighting about now? The other six counts, but in a way, it doesn't matter that much. The AG has already won one of the counts. And then what the damages are going to be. The other really important thing to note here is this is a what we call a bench trial, meaning the judge is going to issue the verdict from the bench, hence the title. Uh, there's some dispute about whether Trump could have had a jury or not, whether he should have asked for one. I think the bottom line on that is he could have asked for one. He probably wouldn't have gotten one, but he could have at least litigated the issue. Whether his lawyers intentionally or did that or screwed up, they never did. And so the judge, who, let's just say it, quite clearly despises Donald Trump, and is ruling against him at every turn, is going to render this verdict. I don't think there's much suspense about what it's going to be. Um, in terms of the trial itself, 
Uh, the big attraction so far, I, let me say spectacle so far, is when Michael Cohen testified. Uh, and I should say Michael is someone I've gotten to know, and I, I like Michael. Um, I know what his history is, but I like him, and I generally trust him. Um, he did take some damage on cross-examination. He's got some background. There was some shouting by Michael and by Trump outside the courtroom. Coming up this week, the Trump – I always hesitate to say children because they're 40 and, and over. But Donald Trump Jr., I should say, Eric Trump and Ivanka – will likely be testifying during this week. And then Donald Trump himself is supposed to be testifying next week. But I think the big question is, will any or all of them take the fifth? Donald Trump took the fifth in his deposition in this case, which he's entitled to do. In a, because this is a civil case, by the way, if he takes the fifth, the judge is allowed to hold it against him, unlike in a criminal case. But if I'm Donald Trump's lawyer, I'm telling him, you're taking the fifth. I mean, this is a civil case, but you're going to be questioned about what the AG alleges is fraud, intentional financial fraud. Various prosecutors have looked at this case and decided not to charge it criminally, but that can change. And so the safe thing to do here is take the fifth. Yeah, the judge can hold it against him. He's already lost. The judge is going to rule against him again. So uh, to me, it's like you got to protect yourself against criminal stuff here. You've already lost the civil case. We're going to appeal that. So, Ellie, you brought up, I think, all the key points, right, which is that there's already been a finding of liability here. And so what we're really talking about, I think, is the remedy. Now, of course, you also highlighted that there hasn't been a finding of liability on all of the counts. So we're still looking at some of the other counts. But this judge has said there is persistent fraud. Make no mistake about it. And there's really no question of civil wrongdoing. Can I run the question by you, Jessica? Do you mind? Mm, we'll see. <laughs> okay. As an experienced litigator, I'm wondering what you think of this. If if you look at the judge's summary judgment ruling, yeah. again, in summary judgment, you're supposed to say, even if the other side is right about everything, they still lose. I'm not so sure that's what the judge did here because there's a there's a sharp difference in facts, in allegations, right? The, the AG saying these values, valuations are way overblown. Trump's team is saying, no, they're not. I feel like what the Trump, what the judge did there was really render a verdict, say, I believe side A, I don't believe side B. I'm actually not sure that's a correct grant of summary judgment because if he did actually credit Trump's team, Trump would win. I don't, what do you think of that? That is such a good question. I'm so happy you asked that. Um, I just recently spoke to, let's say, a member of the federal judiciary about this because as you know, uh, when it comes to summary judgment, then you are asking whether or not there's a genuine dispute as to a material right. fact, right? A fact right. that matters for the verdict. And in this case, as you very clearly laid out, I think that there is. And so now it may be that the judge would get to the same place. So people are saying, well, kind of what difference does it make if you made the decision on summary judgment, but it does make a difference. If we care about the rule of law, if we care about how trials proceed, then, and there's really a genuine dispute as a two material fact, which as you laid out, there seems to be, then that decision should wait until the bench trial is over. And that's where I come out. Great question. And I don't hear people talking about that question enough. I, 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 as you can tell, I think I agree with you. I mean, if this was his verdict, you go, okay, that's his verdict. But Given that it's summary judgment, he he's again, he, this is before the trial started. He said, nope, I don't know. But but he's leaving himself open to an appeal on that, in my view. I think he is. And in terms of remedy, so I've been thinking about this. I know people have asked, I mean, Trump is really present in the courtroom. And there's a lot of hypothesizing about why that is. Obviously, it's a 
state civil case. So even if he was reelected, he, as the head of the uh, executive branch, would have no power to, you know, let's say, try and pardon from liability, even if that was a thing to try and self-pardon from civil liability. But it seems to me that, and I think Lisa Rubin of MSNBC mentioned this, there's something about this case, because it goes to the heart of who he is and who he claims to be, which is this very successful business person. Could this case potentially put him out of business? Yes, uh, potentially. I mean, it's a little more complicated than that, I think, as you recognize. Um, You're right that this case, I mean, I'm not a big fan of the psychoanalysis of Trump, but I do think, and I won't base this on psychoanalysis, I'll base this on good reporting of people like Maggie Haberman and others who are are in touch with his people. He does seem to be especially upset about this case because he fashions himself as his whole persona, his whole industry is I'm a wealthy, successful businessman and this is undercutting that. So there does seem to be here something that that is really under his skin. Um, whether we'll put him out of business, I mean, his he could certainly lose his business certificate. I guess the status quo right now is it's suspended by the judge based on that prior ruling, which will make it very difficult, impossible for him to do business in New York. Can he go try to do business elsewhere? Yeah, but it, it's tricky when you had your license suspended for fraud in another state. You know, it's a little overstated. I think it's a little oversimplified when people have said, oh, he's going to have to liquidate Mar-a-Lago. I mean, Perhaps many years down the line as a last resort when they're trying to pay off all the creditors. But um, it's let's let's leave it. I think it's safe to say that a verdict against him here is going to be a major impediment to him doing business. But I think some of these fantasies out there of, uh, you know, a a garage sale happening outside Trump Tower are a little oversimplified. Yeah, I'm not um, currently concerned that we need to find uh, affordable housing for him, let's say. I don't think we're there yet. And uh, you mentioned Mar-a-Lago. I want to get to that case, but let's jump for a minute and talk about the two election interference cases. And um, let's stay in state court. Let's move to the Georgia election interference case. I think a lot of people know, again, this is a state case. It deals with Trump's efforts and the efforts of others to allegedly overturn and subvert the 2020 election. I'm purposely being very broad and general. Um, It is a RICO case, which I've talked about on the podcast. And the big development, of course, is that three of the former president's former attorneys have agreed to plead guilty to various crimes, some to misdemeanors. We've had our first guilty plea with respect to a felony. We're talking, of course, about Sidney Powell, Kenneth Chesbro, Jenna Ellis, And they're all different pieces of the puzzle. And Ellie, I've heard you speak about this so clearly. I think people don't quite understand how those guilty pleas could affect the overall case. And of course, the case that most people care about is the case against Trump. So are there specific ways where you think this has really changed the legal landscape of this case for the former president? So my view on this has evolved a bit as we've gotten more information over the last few days. Let me start first things first here. It's good. It's good work by Fonnie Willis. It's a nice 
feather in her cap that she's gotten these guilty pleas. Because anytime you have a mega defendant case like this, 19 defendants, I've done some with a few more than that, some with a few less than that. You have to thin the herd. You just, you can't handle 19 defendants. It's too much logistics. The trial's not realistic. It's crazy. So it feels good to lock up a couple pleas. It's good PR wise. It assures the judge, and in this case, the public, like we are, we are, you know, we do have something here. We're getting pleas. Here's where my questioning comes in. My question, the answer to your question, how valuable are these witnesses? How how important are they going to be to building a case against Donald Trump? Depends on whether they're full cooperators or half-assed cooperators, to use a non-technical term. The federal model is if you're going to plead guilty and testify, you have to eat everything. You have to, as we say, eat the indictment. So especially the more the more serious and important the charge, the more important it is that you plead guilty to it. So if this was a federal case and Sidney Powell or Kenneth Chesbro or Jenna Ellis wanted to testify, the prosecutor would say, wonderful, you'll be pleading guilty tomorrow to the felony racketeering, to all the other felonies. You'll get your benefit at the end if you cooperate. It's called the 5K letter. States do it a little differently. And I have some real questions about the way Fonnie Willis has done this here. First of all, she has given these cases on the face in a vacuum. She has given these cases away indefensibly cheap. Uh, nobody's pled guilty to Rico. Nobody only, as you said, two of the four have pled guilty to low level felonies, which will get wiped off their records. The other two have pled guilty to misdemeanors. Nobody's doing a day behind bars. And for all this self-congratulation that the DA did upon unveiling rap, massive racketeering, vindicating democracy itself, you're going to plead out four people, none of them to Rico. None of them to a day behind bars. Okay, but there's a yeah, but. And the yeah, but is, yeah, but they're cooperating. But are they? That's what we don't know. And let's look at Sidney Powell. Sidney Powell pled guilty to a couple, a handful of misdemeanors because she was part of the effort to breach the voting equipment in Coffee County, Georgia. Um, she admitted that. However, the big question to me was, is she going to say, she has to now say if she ever testifies, yes, I was part of this illegal effort to breach the voting equipment. That's what I pled to. But part B is what really matters. There. Is she going to say, and I acknowledge that these wild claims I made about fraud were false. I knew it at the time. It was part of our effort to steal the election. Or is she going to say, I stand by those statements about election fraud. They were right then. They're right now. I advised Donald Trump accordingly, and he was justified in listening to me. Well, guess what? Now we know that it's the second one. Because Sidney Powell, since she took this plea, has been tweeting aggressively about wild election fraud. She's right back at it. 2020 election was stolen. And this is Fonnie Willis's fault because now Sidney Powell's not usable as a witness. She cannot put Sidney Powell on the stand because Sidney Powell's going to go, yeah, me and these other people you've never heard of, we breached the, the stuff and we breached the voting equipment in Coffee County. And then you know what Trump's lawyer is going to do on cross-exam? Go, 2020 election was stolen, right? Sidney Powell's going to go, you betcha. And you're going to go, you believe that then, right? Yep. You advised my client of that, right? Yes. You're a former federal prosecutor. Yes, I am. It's not, he sh he was very much within his right to listen to you. Yes, because there the 2020 election was stolen. Yes, it was. You cannot call that witness as a prosecutor. It will backfire. Sidney Powell, I'm sorry, is not a cooperator in any proper sense of the word. Why is Fonnie Willis giving these deals? Now, look, maybe it's different. Maybe Chesborough or Jenna Ellis has fully come on board. Why is Fonnie Willis doing this? I don't think she's incompetent. I don't think she doesn't realize this. I don't think her team was ready to try Chesborough and Sidney Powell starting this week. I don't think they were ready to put on a five-month trial calling all these different witnesses, and I think they wanted a way to back out of that and try to save face. And I think the way they save face, and it worked, is we got these guilty pleas and they've all flipped. Sidney Powell has not flipped. There's just no way about uh, around that.
I'm so happy that you highlighted that and why, because when the news first broke and I have more experience with the federal system than obviously the Georgia state system or even state systems in general, I similarly thought, eat the indictment. We're like, we're done. This is really big news. Ellie, I want to focus in on something that I think there may be some confusion about either in this Georgia election case and or the federal election case, which is, and you brought it up a little bit, but this question of do we need Sidney Powell and or Trump to admit that they knew that they lost the election or, and that there was no voter fraud and or slightly different, do we just need them to admit that they knew and or for a prosecutor to prove that they used illegal means to try and stay in power. And right. people might think of this as, you know, your wallet is stolen. You think you know who stole your wallet. And so you decide to break into your neighbor's house, set off the alarm, break the windows. Even if you really think you believe that your wallet was stolen, you think it was your neighbor, you're not entitled to engage in a robbery or a burglary. So- is that the right way of thinking about this? I think there's some confusion about exactly what's needed here. No, you're you're exactly right. It is completely possible that a person actually believed they were wronged. That it's possible that Donald Trump actually believed the election was stolen from him. I don't think he did, but it's, you know, it, theoretically, it's possible that Donald Trump actually believed the election was stolen from him but still violated the law. You gave a perfect analogy. But I will say that the idea that Trump either knew or absolutely should have known he lost, is going to be a key component of Jack Smith's case in trying to prove criminal intent. And you know that by reading the indictment. It is in the, I think, the second sentence of the indictment. It is a constant theme throughout the indictment that Jack Smith harps on, Not, and I don't mean this as criticism, but Jack Smith constantly says he knew he lost, he should have known he lost, he was advised that he lost, because if you can show that, it shows the fraudulent state of mind. But you're right, Jessica, there are certain things that even if it doesn't matter what he believed, you still can't do it. But, but I'm not so sure on what the equivalent would be of the breaking into the into the neighbor's home here. Like what – I mean you could say, well, you still can't lobby the, the vice president, for example, to throw out the votes. I don't know about that. People were lobbying Mike Pence both ways. Uh, why can't you lobby Mike Pence even if you're wrong? People say – I guess you can't call Brad Raffensperger and ask him to find votes – Let's be careful about that tr that quote because we've all heard. I just want I can do the impression now. I just want you to find eleven thousand seven hundred eighty votes. Everyone goes well. There you go, smoking gun. And to take that one snippet, I agree. Listen, if I'm a prosecutor, I love that quote. But there's other portions in that call where Donald Trump says, "All I want you to do is count all the votes as they were cast." And I'm I'm just it's not Doug Jones who you you probably you know U.S. Senator from Alabama, liberal you know former federal prosecutor, liberal hero, and again I mean that in a positive way. He said on air at CNN, he held up that transcript. He said, "Anyone who thinks that this is game over is absolutely misled. A defense lawyer is going to have a ball with this thing. Doesn't mean it's a bad call for Trump. It, it's something I would like as a prosecutor, not like as a defense lawyer. But it's not necessarily just like well he said fine that's it. So I, I guess." The point of all this is you are right to, to note that you don't have to prove as a prosecutor that Trump really believe, really knew he lost or truly believed it, but it helps and Jack Smith is sure as heck going to try. Yes, and I think you're exactly right to point out, I mean, these phone calls 
are long. And this is something that Michael Cohen mentioned, I think, in his congressional testimony. And it's something that you talk about in your book, Untouchable, that I want to end by talking about the book and how I think we're really seeing so many of the things that you mentioned play out real time, which is that everybody knew what Trump wanted and they understood, I think, what he was asking but that he spoke in ways so that if you and I were having this conversation years later, we would have to say, but look at the context. This isn't a slam dunk. Now, you brought up um, Jack Smith, and you're bringing us, I think, very correctly to the federal case and the federal election interference case. And only because time is limited, I wanted to focus in on two things. And the first is the grant of immunity that was apparently given to former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. I've heard you speak about this on air, and I'm hoping you can explain why this is worth talking about on air, why this is a, this is not a nothing burger. To me, this is, this is a legit big deal. So think about it this way. If you're a prosecutor and you're thinking about cooperating someone, signing someone up as a cooperator, as we say, there's sort of three levels. The lowest level, the exploratory level, is what's sometimes called a proffer. Some people call it a queen for a day. And what that would mean, Jessica, is let's say you're the defense lawyer, I'm the prosecutor. I would say, Jessica, bring your client in. Give me a sense of what she's going to say in advance, your client. I'm going to hear her out. We're going to give her, they call it a queen for the day because it's a letter that says whatever she tells us in this conference room, we won't use against her with some very narrow exceptions. She can't lie to us and we'll assess it. So you bring her in. That's called the proffer. She spends a day telling us what she knows, a few hours, and then I go back and I digest it. If I believe she's being truthful and has useful information, I may then come back to you and say, well, Jessica, we're interested in your client. And you're going to tell me, well, that's fine, but she's going to take the fifth here because she has some potential exposure or he, Mark Meadows. Let's say Mark Meadows is your client. I can then say, okay, fine. He's taking the fifth. That's his right. Nothing I can really do. Or my counter move to that is to give him immunity. Now, that means as a prosecutor, I have to write up a little internal memo, get it over to a judge. Judges almost always automatically sign these saying, hey, judge, we have this guy, Mark Meadows. He has really valuable testimony, but he's taking the fifth. What we want to do is give him a free pass, but we're going to agree not to use his testimony against him and as a practical matter, not to not to charge him. The DOJ manual says if you immunize someone, you, you shouldn't then turn around and charge him. It's foul play, basically. That's sort of level two. Level three is... I might say to you, Jessica, I, I really need his testimony, um, but what he did was too serious and too central to the crime, so he's going to have to plead guilty. Now, you would fight me on that as a good defense, or you'd say, well, he, he should just be given immunity, and then I'll have to decide, like, is it the kind of thing I can let go for immunity, or is it the kind of thing where he has to plead guilty? The fact that they have reached that second level of immunity tells me prosecutors have decided, A, we believe him. You don't go get immunity for someone if, if you don't have a good basis to think they're telling the truth. B, we think his testimony is valuable. And C, we don't think the evidence that he was involved directly a criminal in a crime is strong enough to make him plead. And so what that leads me to is he's a witness and prosecutors are willing to call him and believe him and present him in a case against Donald Trump, in a way that he really, unlike the Sidney Powell example I just gave you, in a way that he really can't try to have both ways or wriggle out of without serious consequences. So I do think this is real. And look, who's closer physically and and per perceptually to Donald Trump than Mark Meadows, who was closer to him than Mark Meadows? I mean, we heard Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. She was a step removed. 
she has said publicly, like, Mark Meadows knows multiples of what I know. I mean, this is the guy you want. Right. And that's such a clear way of thinking through what the prosecution understood from what Mark Meadows had to offer. And it is just yet another reminder that we really need to focus in on what people are apparently saying under oath versus what they are saying outside of the courtroom or outside of a deposition or outside of a grand jury inquiry, because that is really what we're going to focus on here. Having just said that, the other thing that I want to talk about with you in the federal election interference case is, in fact, what is said sometimes outside the courtroom, sometimes inside the courtroom. Of course, I'm talking about the gag order, in my view, the very limited gag order that Judge Chutkin imposed on the former president that involves really just three buckets of people. It's her court staff. They have to be able to come to work, not fear for their safety or their lives and be able to do their jobs. It's the special prosecutor's office, members of the Department of Justice, but not the Department of Justice in general. And then, of course, it's likely witnesses. And she did not, as you know very well, she did not give the prosecution everything they wanted in terms of this gag order. In my view, it's actually quite narrowly tailored. She has reinstituted the gag order, in my mind, indicating that she thinks very real harm will occur if that gag order is put on pause and we wait for an appeals process to play out. But what I'd love to hear from you is your thoughts on whether or not you think the gag order does have First Amendment vulnerability. Of course, we're thinking about overbreath. We're thinking about vagueness. And um, we know that the First Amendment is limited. Otherwise, the class I teach would be a day, not a semester. Right? <laughs> so in looking at the gag order, in your experience, is this something where you think an appellate court might say, go back, give us some more standards here, or can it withstand scrutiny? So I do not think the appellate court is going to say this is an abuse of the First Amendment. I think they will either uphold Judge Chutkin's order or maybe ask her to fine-tune certain elements of it. Um, I give Judge Chutkin credit in this decision, and I think through much of what she's done, I think she's done a good job so far. I do do think the trial date is unfair and unrealistic, but let's stay with the gag order. What DOJ went to Judge Chutkin with was way overbroad and – way uh, undefined and undefinable. They tried to call, they, DOJ said, this is a narrow gag order. No, it wasn't. It said what DOJ wanted her to sign onto, and she wisely did not, said he Trump cannot say anything derogatory or or insulting or something to like anyone with anything to do with this case. I mean, you're, you are allowed as a defendant to criticize aggressively, meanly, the prosecutor, the judge, you know, within certain limitations. I think Judge Chutkin did a good job of taking that very broad ask and trimming it down, as you said. Where I think it may suffer a little bit is she does say at one point he can criticize the case against him and DOJ in general, but not in an inflammatory way. It's like, well, what is he supposed to say? I I respectfully heretofore register my discontent with – no, you're allowed to say this is bullshit. I mean like we don't have to – this isn't manners class. But – I think she's pretty darn close to the mark. Again, at most, I think the, the Court of Appeals is going to say, hey, give us a little more clarity on this. And these judges are in a really tough spot. I think she was right. So you're right. She had put the gag order on hold because she was letting everyone appeal it. Then Trump like immediately starts 
attacking, like verbally attacking what was it, Mark Meadows immediately as soon as the news broke that we discussed, Bill Barr as well, who I'm not sympathetic. I mean, my whole first book is a criticism of Bill Barr, but both of them are likely witnesses, potential witnesses in Trump immediately. So she said, oh, hang on, we need to get this safety net back in place, which I think was the right move. But here's the discipline problem that both judges who have gag orders are going to have. There's one in Manhattan as well in the first case we talked about. But when you are raising kids, especially toddlers, there's big punishments and there's little punishments. Like the big punishment is like, we're going to turn this car around and go home. A little punishment is like, well, you can't be on your iPod for, for an hour. But sometimes they know you're not really going to hit them with the big punishment, right? And they don't really care about the small punishment. And so then it becomes a discipline problem. And here, obviously, the big punishment, which I think Trump knows is basically not going to happen, is imprisonment. And the small punishment, which he doesn't give a crap about, is $5,000 and $10,000 fines. So, you know, it may just be you have to hit him with a $250,000 fine. I'm not sure if there's a limit or something under New York state law. But um, he seems to understand that it's very unlikely he gets locked up on a violation of a gag order, especially in a civil case. So I, I don't – this is not one where I, I you know, pretend to have all the answers of what I would do if I was a judge. I'd probably just hit him with very rapidly escalating financial penalties, not $5,000 to $10,000 like in the state case, like multiples of that. But um, I do think Judge Chutkin has crafted a more or less reasonable gag order here. Well, and my feeling is that because Trump has said so many times they just want to violate my First Amendment rights, they just want to prevent me from talking to you, the voters, that if, in fact, there is a fine of a quarter million dollars, he can raise 500000 off of that by saying, see, I told you. And <laughs> you may so be right. Yeah. I, I think this gag order is politically, I know that this is strange to say, but politically, I think it's great news for him because he's saying, look at everything I've told you. They keep trying to silence me. And it, but he's boxed judges like Judge Chutkin uh, into a corner because what else? Do you agree? Possibly- Do you agree that there's essentially, there's practically speaking no real way either these judges can throw him in prison for this? So, it would be an administrative nightmare, right? I mean, well, yes, but also politically, I mean, just the appearance of it would be, it would almost be the best thing for him, right? You know, I feel about all of these cases, on the one hand, I feel like, how could they not? And then I feel like, how could they? And that goes way beyond the gag order, right? That's for everything, where I I simultaneously hold these two different beliefs of how could he possibly be convicted of any of the criminal cases. We haven't talked about all of them. We don't have time. Or how could he possibly be let off the hook? So Right. It's a very good way to put it. Let, let me ask you, let me ask you this. I have heard I heard a respected not CNN anchor say, oh, anyone else will be thrown in jail. It happens all the time. I really? I mean, I, I've seen and supervised and if you count all the cases I've ever done, supervised or seen thousands, probably tens of thousands of cases. I've seen maybe a couple gag order violations with a couple. Of, I've never seen anyone locked up for violating a gag. Have you? No. Right. I mean, so it, it's a little glib, I think, for some people to be like, what do you mean? This happens. People get locked up all day long for violating gag orders. No, they don't. Well, I will say if but I've never seen another person behave quite like this. So, no, I agree. I agree. But the notion that people are getting just slammed with gag orders and thrown in jail all day long is like, what are you talking about? I, I totally agree with that. I think kind of writ large or more broadly, the notion that Donald Smith is already in federal prison 
that speaks to me. But the gag order, no. And for reasons that we talked about, I mean, there are very real First Amendment concerns. And I think that judges do not like to incarcerate people based on violations. But And most people don't push them to that outer bounds of- He's pushing. He's really pushing. He's almost like enjoying it. You know, he's almost, it's, it's, it's wild. I mean, it's amazing to me how quickly he immediately attacked Meadows and Barr. And not even like, I mean, as we talked about, and I talked about it in the book, he's really good at saying it without saying it, as Michael Cohen has described. But he's not, he's just straight up like, honestly, like, you know, I'm always hesitant to just be like, that's a crime. If you just look at what he says about Mark Meadows, that's basically witness tampering right there, right? If you're trying to influence or intimidate a witness, well, when you post what he posted about Mark Meadows, that's kind of it on its face. So it's a tough problem to police for judges and prosecutors. And I think it's a place where judges don't want to be. I mean, I've never met a judge who's like, you know what I'm really excited to do? Impose a gag order because there's there's no concerns about that. And I just talked to my students about this last night in a different context, which is I think judges really do not like saying, you can say that, you can't say that. You know what else? There's a PR problem here. Gag orders need to come up with a new name. Uh, I know. <laughs> because you picture someone actually like bound in gag, like, you know, whoever's in charge of PR for gag orders is like needs to rebrand it as like, let's see, like pre-trial safety restrict. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Protection of witnesses. I mean. Right. There's got to be some like euphemistic way to say it. Yeah. I mean, it's the it is very much feels like the Trump campaign, in fact, wrote that um, right. nickname <laughs> only because I know how busy you are and we're limited on time. I think that we should not talk about the details of the federal Mar-a-Lago case, um, but use it as maybe a backdrop of talking about your second book that I mentioned before, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. And I already mentioned your first book, the bestseller, Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department. I have a feeling many of my listeners have already uh, picked up both, but if you haven't already, I really want to recommend both of them to you. And with respect to the second book, part of what we discussed is that what's playing out in Mar-a-Lago is something that you wrote about, which is Trump, like other heads of organized crime groups. And I should say that again, Trump, like other alleged heads of mafia families, organized crime organizations, has offered to pay for the representation of his co-defendants. And we see that playing out in the Mar-a-Lago case. So could you tell us why is this one of the kind of quintessential tactics that you see in terms of the you know, quote unquote, how people get away with it. And what specifically is happening with respect to these conflict of interest hearings in the Mar-a-Lago case? Right. So sometimes when when you write a book, it gets locked off at a certain point. The publisher just says, in my case, HarperCollins, my publisher, just at a certain point, you're done because it has to go to the printer. And it's nerve wracking because things can happen that totally undermine what you've said or that beautifully illustrate what you said. And I've had both happen. The latter has happened with this particular uh, point. I have a chapter in my book about this. Everyone knows rich, famous, powerful people. They'll go hire, you know, we all know Dream Team. OJ had his Dream Team, right? Everyone, Jeffrey Epstein had his, I, I use scare quotes here, Dream Team, because I don't think they were very good. But, you know, they'll, they'll get these $10 million, $40 million defenses. 
What is much or was much less visible is that real powerhouses, real bosses, and it can be mob bosses, it can be corrupt, but it also can be perfectly legitimate corporation CEOs often will pay for lawyers for other people around them. Now, let me say this. It's not necessarily evil or nefarious. A lot of times people want to have their lawyers provided and paid for. They don't know where to find a lawyer. They don't have the resources. If you're part of a company that comes under investigation, you don't want to go pay for your own lawyer. You want the company to pay. But the practical impact of that is it makes it really, really difficult to flip, A, because you're afraid. Gee, I can't go tell my whether, you know, I used to do mafia cases. I can't tell this lawyer provided by the boss I want to flip. I'll get killed. Not that dramatic in other cases, but in Trump's case, I can't betray Donald Trump. And B, you're going to lose the lawyer and you're going to have to pay for your own lawyer. And so that really is a deterrent to cooperation or complete and total cooperation. And the per and, and the perfect example here is Cassidy Hutchinson. She has said publicly that she was first provided a, a lawyer paid for by the Trump org or Trump PAC or something and did not feel like she could tell the full truth. And that lawyer advised her, hey, don't be forthcoming. You know, it's fine to say you don't know. And as a result, she withheld some important details. Only when she broke away from that lawyer and she found some lawyers who I think did the work for her pro bono, was she able to tell the full truth. And that's when she became such a powerful witness. And you see that all the time in real cases. Now, what's happening in Mar-a-Lago is the judge, you can um, waive any conflict of interest, meaning a judge can pull a defendant up and go, hey, your lawyer is being paid for by Donald Trump's people, right? And the the, the co-defendant go, yes, you're aware of that. Yes, that means they may have divided loyalties. Yes. Are you OK with that? And usually the person will go, yes, I'm fine with it. And then the judge will have to use some discretion. But usually judges go, OK, as long as you're aware and you're fine, we're good to go. Here, here's one interesting note that I, I want to throw in. I found this in my research in the book. DOJ used to have a policy up until 2008 in, on the books that said, if we're looking at a large organization or corporation and they are paying for everyone's lawyers, that is a strike against the corporation when we're deciding has the corporation cooperated and been cooperative. In 2008, this is the kind of thing that happens behind closed doors. With a stroke of a pen, DOJ, so 2008, this would have been, I'm not even thinking about it politically, but who, now I am, with, I guess, Bush administration, right? George W. Bush administration, with a stroke of a pen, says, no, we've reconsidered. It's actually fine. And the funny thing that, that made me laugh out loud when I saw it was the actual DOJ statement says, we believe that corporate America shares the same commitment to transparency as we do at DOJ. It's like, really? I don't, I mean, I don't blame corporations for everything, but I don't think they have the same, they decidedly do not have the same interest. Um, but DOJ basically in 2008 said, totally cool. And you know what? From 2008 on, the entirety of the Obama administration, the entirety of the Trump administration, the entirety of the Biden administration, they have not changed that policy. So this is something that DOJ has for the last 15 years been entirely permissive of. And the natural result of it is it does protect bosses because it prevents people from flipping. I tell, I'll let you, uh, I'll finish up here, but I tell a story in the book about a 20 something defendant mob case we did where a guy, maybe two thirds of the way down the indictment, you know, who was a, a, a guy we were very interested in flipping, wanted to flip, but he had one of these mob appointed lawyers. And so he sent his girlfriend on this like, sort of secret, you know, backdoor mission to tell us that he wanted to get out from it. And I won't spoil it, but we have to go through a little bit of legal cloak and dagger to get him pulled out of there and get him assigned a 
faithful lawyer and well i'll let you i'll let you read read into that but uh in the book but it's a wild story about the, all the crazy things we had to do to get clear of this conflict of interest so donald trump has mastered that art a lot of the people around trump i list them in the book have been had their lawyers paid for by Trump PACs or Trump Org over the years, and it's really protected and insulated him. I loved Untouchable because it's really well researched. I mean, we've we are familiar with the concept. If you're powerful, if you're wealthy, if you're famous, you have a different access to the justice system than other people. But you brought new information, you brought personal experience. And I feel that so often I leave the podcast on a down note, and I would like to preview for those people who haven't read the book yet, what are some ways that you think, no, there is a solution here. This is not beyond help. Like There are actually things we could do so we don't have a two-tier system of justice. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of little fixes. I mean, the, for example, the DOJ policy I just talked about, you could, Merrick Garland today could say, no, we're not, we're not okay with you know, with corporations and bosses paying other people's legal fees. There are a whole bunch of small things like that. I think a small factor, or I think a big factor is understanding how these things work, looking at the way that a savvy boss will communicate his intention without necessarily saying, hey, I need you to go extort this guy. Or, you know, I use the example of Michael Cohen in the book. Michael Cohen has said, even in this trial that's happening right now, he testified, Trump wouldn't say to me, I need you to falsify the records. He would, but he would say, hey, you know, I'm super wealthy and let's make sure everything reflects that. Like Michael has said, he knew how to get his point across to me. But I think my overarching point that I make in the book, and I'll give credit to Jack Smith and to Fonnie Willis and, and Alvin Bragg, is you can't sit there waiting for a smoking gun, undeniable, 100% locked in case. And we do tend to get spoiled as prosecutors because we, especially in the federal system, we get to choose our cases. And a lot of times if you're like, eh. There's a little bit of questionable area in this case. You don't bring it. And there's plenty of times you should not bring a case. But I do argue that a lot of it just comes down to being able to see through these tactics, argue to a jury through them, and bring the case and, and do your best. And, and at the time I wrote the book, nobody had been indicted. But I do say in the book, I think by the time you're holding this, he will have been indicted probably multiple times. So I do give them credit. Look, these cases are not easy cases to make. They're going to be very difficult cases to try. But I think they're, by and large, doing their jobs as prosecutors. I've been critical of them all in various ways. But I do give them credit for, for taking a shot and not backing down. They all should have done it much quicker, by the way. It's inexcusable that they all waited two and a half years to do this. And, and that's why we're in this incredible time crunch and crazy situation where you're going to have maybe a trial happening concurrent with the election uh, or, or the campaign. Uh, that I think is on prosecutors in their fault. But so there's no one magic, you know, prescription here. But I think if you understand all the various ways, and I've, you know, I don't know, 15 chapters saying here's different things they do, it, it can help you see through and see how cases can still be made. Ellie Honig, CNN senior legal analyst, the author of best-selling Hatchet Man, also author of Untouchable podcast host. If the listeners had half as much fun as I did, um, I know this will be a really enjoyable episode for them. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Jessica. That was really fun. 